Thank you so much for being here today. It's so good to be with you. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 3, then we're going to go to Romans chapter 5. So if you want to go ahead and uh, turn your Bible to the very first book in your Bible, Genesis <clears throat> chapter 3, i got to tell you, uh, so my junior year of high school, uh, I was in an earth science class, and after, it was a great class. It was so much fun. And at the end of the year, we got to this activity where our teacher took us to a <clears throat> national forest is near Steamboat Springs, and he divided up the class into these little groups of two and three, and little teams, and he gave us a topographic map and a compass, and this is an orienteering exercise that we did, and he had set up a point somewhere in the forest, and we were all going to race to see who could get there first, and the first one who could, you know, find the best path to get to this point out in the forest that he had predetermined, you were going to win. And I was super competitive. I really wanted to win this thing really bad. I chose this guy, Scott, and uh, there were a couple of seniors that were ahead of us that I had played football with. I wanted to beat them really, really badly. So we chose a path through the forest that was a little bit more rugged, but it was a shorter distance. We were like, man, we'll just go mountain goat this thing. We're going to win, all right? And so we take off. And I remember we were running. We'd gone about two miles up and down all kinds of hills and valleys and things. And I come to this cliff, this little bluff, about five or six feet down, there's this little brook running down. And uh, I thought, man, if I run hard, I can clear that brook. And there's a big pile of leaves on the other side of this little brook. And so, man, I run and I take off and I jump and I land on that pile of leaves and it was quicksand. And I sunk up to my chest in this mud. And man, I had seen enough Tarzan movies to know, man, I am doomed if I move, right? So I'm, I'm sitting there, I spread my arms out, and my friend's name was Scott. And I was like, Scott, save me, save me, Scott, don't leave me here, don't let me die, you know? And uh, so Scott, you know, went looking around, found a way down, and he came over there, and he kind of took his long sick, and he gave it to me, pulled me out, just like you see in the movies. Man, it was intense, it really was. It scared me to death. And even to this day, I think, <clears throat> if that mud had been just like, Two feet deeper, I wouldn't be here, you know? Uh, just incredible. There's kind of a solid bottom down there. And uh, we didn't win, but I didn't care. I was just glad to be alive. I really was. Well, then I was, I was reminded of that because I read a story last week. This happened about two weeks ago. There's a young man named Zachary Porter. He's 20 years old. He's from Illinois. And he was out in Alaska. I know some of you have planned trips to Alaska, so pay attention. He hiked out on some tidal mud flats in an estuary near a glacier. It's a beautiful place. But there are all sorts of signs that say no trespassing, dangerous, don't go, et cetera, et cetera. But he wanted to go out there anyway. And he got out to a certain point and he sank down in quicksand up to his waist. And when the tide is coming into this particular estuary, uh, you, you don't see the water before the water starts to seep into the sand, it kind of creates kind of a, a suction action on you. <clears throat> on you, And so uh, his friends were trying to pull him out, and they couldn't get him out, and they called 911. They were desperate because what happens in this particular tidal flat is that when the tide comes in, it comes in in a wave that's 8 or 10 feet tall. And so the tide came in so fast, they were unable to free Zach Porter before the mud and the tide, I'm sorry, before the tide came in, that big eight-foot wave and it covered him over. You know, we all feel this way every day, don't we? It feels, life sometimes feels like you're mired in quicksand. It feels like you're fighting for life. And while you are, the tide is rising and you know your time is short. When you think about this, you know, like, sometimes, do you ever ask yourself this question? Like, why is life so hard? You know, why does everything have to be so hard? 
Why do relationships have to be so hard? You know, why is money and finance, why is it so difficult? You know, then the kids, the job, your health, your possessions. It feels like you're constantly struggling, but then you're losing ground and you're gaining speed while you're doing it, you know? And you struggle and you struggle, but something is wrong with everything. And it seems like the harder you fight, the deeper you sink. Does it ever feel that way to you sometimes? And you ask yourself, why? Why is it this way? Adam and Eve had everything that people could want in this beautiful paradise. And I don't know if they had Instagram back in those days, but they had a bad case of FOMO, the fear of missing out. And for some reason, the thought entered their mind when the serpent said to Eve, you know, that, that planted that suggestion that God was holding out on them. And, and she thought, are we missing out? And he thought, is God keeping something from us? And God had labeled one tree, just one, off limits, no trespassing. But Adam decided that he should be the one who made the rules in his life. And he willfully ignored God's no trespassing sign. And the world has never been the same. You notice there in Genesis chapter 3, after they'd eaten the fruit from that tree, it says in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And look at verse 13. When he found out what they had done, he said, what have you done? I think those are two, uh, three or four of the most chilling words in the Bible. What have you done? It's just incredible, isn't it? You think about the gravity of that. And then theologians call this history, this episode of history, the fall. But it's more like a thundering crash. It really is. Two sinister forces, sin and death, just rush in to human existence. And this changes everything for everyone. Look down at verse 17, what he says to the man, what he says to Adam. Now I want to put this up. This is from the voice translation. You might want to look at this on the screen. For the rest of your life, you're going to fight for every crumb of food. And as you labor, the ground will produce thorns and thistles. Your brow will sweat for your mouth to taste even a morsel of bread until the day you return to the very ground I made you from. From dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. These twin towers of sin and death, they frustrate every human being every day until finally life just kind of comes to an end. And I think, well, Les, man, I'm getting really depressed here today, you know. I want to tell you that there is an answer, and that's why I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. The title today is Reign in Life. And what we've been saying is that we have this issue, this problem that we have to face every day, and that is that in the current time that we live in, we're living under the curse of the crash, not the curse of the fall, but the curse of this crash, this thundering crash that brought sin and death into our everyday life, in our everyday world. And so where are we today? Romans chapter 5, this is one of the most important uh, scripture passages anywhere in your Bible, and it is just a beautifully written 
passage. It is so powerful. It is so profound. And it can be a little bit hard to understand. We're going to unpack it today. But I want you to see this because it is just incredible. Chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, the Ten Commandments, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. You you think about that. From the time of Adam until the Ten Commandments were given, people like Abraham and people, you know, Samson, uh, no, not Samson, I'm sorry, but people like Abraham died. Okay. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Look at verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin, The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Do you notice that the word gift is used five times in that passage and the word grace is used three times? Which, by the way, they're derivatives of the same word, charis. So Paul is basically, he's almost repeating himself eight times in this passage. It really is amazing. So the first thing we need to learn from this is that, yeah, death defines our earthly existence. Look at verse 12. Death came to all people. You see, Genesis helps us understand why everything around us can be so strikingly beautiful, yet so terribly tragic. You know, Mel and I, we drove down to Fredericksburg to see the kids over the weekend. And if you leave here and drive to Fredericksburg down Highway 83, down through Abilene, seven hours of wildflowers. It is incredible. There's anything like it. It is just amazing. And yet, things can be so beautiful, but so tragic. Adam chose to deny his dependence upon God, his creator, and the entire cosmos was shaken. It was like a depth charge. When he rebelled against God, when he trespassed, it was a depth charge in all of reality, and the shock waves just reverberated through all of creation. And you might be sitting here today thinking, why can't I just kind of pull it together? Why can't I just be better? Why can't I just do better? There are forces at work around you and me, things like death, decay, entropy, futility on a cosmic scale. And God has subjected his creation to these destructive forces as a consequence of Adam's sin. And you and I have to live within the the confines of the repercussions of this. Isaiah chapter 24, look at this. The, uh, The earth suffers for the sins of its people, for they have twisted God's instructions, violated his laws, and broken his everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. 
See, Romans chapter 5 is the clearest example in your Bible of what theologians call original sin. Sin has been passed on to our entire race through our progenitor, Adam. And I don't have to go any further than my own heart to find evidence that something is terribly wrong. You know, I didn't choose this for myself. You know, I was born this way. You know, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. And I was born like this. And lest you get kind of smug, you were too. All right, we were all born this way. And the clearest statement on original sin I have ever read came from the Minnesota Crime Commission. They published this in 1927. Listen to this. Every baby starts life as a little savage. (laughs) I love that. That's a great first line. Not a little cherub, not a little angel, a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmates' toys, whatever. Deny him these, and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent and have permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal. (laughs) Original sin. And you think sometimes when life gets really hard, maybe you're sick or can't pay the bills and you're, you're weary, you're stressed and you're, you might be fighting with your husband or your wife or your kids. And you might confide in a friend. Man, I'm really dealing with some life stuff right now. You're not dealing with life stuff. You're dealing with death stuff. That's what you're dealing with. See, the pale of death hangs over everything about our lives in this, certain, in this existence we have now. Job chapter 3, Job said this, Why is life given to those with no future, those God has surrounded with difficulties? I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, only trouble comes. And sometimes people say, well, life takes a toll on us. That's mistaken. Death, death takes a toll on us. Death takes an enormous toll on you and me, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally. Look at verse 14, death reigned, Paul says, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. When you read that phrase, Death reigned gives you chills. The complete, merciless authority and power of death over our lives. And the power of death touches everything. Our thoughts, our emotions, our relationships, our possessions. And death is emptiness, loneliness, misery, depression, futility restlessness, desperation. And then ultimately, we all lose loved ones, people we care about very, very much. We wonder, how can life go on without them? And then we all eventually will lose our very own life to the power of death. And other people ask the same question about us. And as Paul tells us, this happened because of one man, Adam. And Adam is a Hebrew word that means humankind. He was the first of us. Many people today doubt the historicity of Genesis. They think the first few chapters of Genesis are myth or legend. 
And they believe Adam and Eve weren't real people. But this chapter shows us that that belief is false. Jesus himself, the world's greatest teacher, believed in a real Adam and Eve. And you can't claim, as some skeptics do, that Jesus was a great teacher if he got that most basic thing wrong. Jesus based his teaching on marriage, on a literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2, when he said in Mark chapter 10, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and joins together with his wife, and the two become one flesh. He was literally reading Genesis 1 and 2. Paul is no different. He believes Adam was a real person in history, not an allegory. And all through the passage, you see Adam as a historical individual contrasted with the person of Jesus, a historical individual, sin and death, Paul says, came through Adam, contrasted with life and grace coming through Jesus. I want you to see this chart that I kind of put together because Paul does a fantastic job of laying these two things side by side. Through Adam, you see disobedience, but in Jesus, you see obedience. Through Adam, you see the trespass, but in Jesus, you see righteousness. In Adam, we have condemnation, but in Jesus, there is justification. And in Adam, many are made sinners, but in Jesus, many are made righteous. And then ultimately, where does that all lead? In Adam, he causes death, but Jesus gives life. And it's the major theme of this next section is the life that is found in Jesus. And against the dark background of Adam's disobedience and the the condemnation and the trespass and the fatal results for all of us, the work of Christ brought into our existence. And look at what he says here in uh, verse 14. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. You know, when you're a pastor, we have a few men in here who've been pastors before. Uh, they would testify, you spend more time than most people in cemeteries. And you know what you never get used to when you go to seminaries? Yeah, same thing. Uh, (laughs) When you go to a cemetery is uh, the gravestones that don't have a hyphen. You know, when children die. Hmm. You think about this. Infants and children, they haven't knowingly broken any law of God, but they die. Why? How is that fair? How is that just? It's so tragic. Look at that word pattern. Adam was a pattern of the one to come. The word there is typos. We got our word typewriter. For those of you who are under the age of 50, these are these ancient machines that you would hit the key and the, and, a, and a key would strike the paper and leave a mark on the paper. All right, and as a typewriter, it comes from that Greek word. And yes, you know, a mark or impression that was left by a chisel or a stylus on stone or on clay. What is Paul saying here? There was a mark on Adam when he trespassed against God. And that mark, sin, was passed on to all of us. And so we are all devastated by sin and death. And we die physically because we are afflicted with death spiritually. 
That's why David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We become enslaved to sin because of this spiritual mark that was put upon us that we received from Adam. That's what theologians call the total depravity of man. We lack the power to say no to sin, and so we become slaves to sin. And the only hope for us to be free from the reign of death is to enter into a new kingdom, to leave the kingdom where death reigns and go into the kingdom where life reigns, to be raised to life in Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, in the past, you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sins, and you followed the world's evil way. But God's mercy is so abundant and his love is so great that while you were spiritually dead in your disobedience, he brought us to life with Christ. Oh, it's so beautiful. I love it so much. And so here we go. Next section. Grace defeats sin and death. That word grace is repeated over and over again in this passage. Look at verse 15. The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace overflow to the many? You might expect Paul to say something like this. In Adam, many died, but in Christ, many came to life. But instead, what he does, he he focuses in on the grace of God so that you and I will appreciate the magnificence of the gift. And by the way, notice the phrase, much more. He's going to say much more five times in this passage, in this section. And he's trying to describe the indescribable, the grace of God, over, overwhelming sin and death, all right, in this section. And what he's trying to say here is that in Jesus, we have gained much more than we ever lost in Adam. Look at verse 16. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. You see, the grace of Christ is not just God's disposition or God's attitude toward you. The grace of Christ is a tremendous power at work in your life and mine that reverses the curse of sin. It's like you're going down the highway 100 miles an hour on the highway to hell, and somehow he is able to slam it into reverse and change the course of your life. That is what the grace of God is. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, By God's special gift of grace given to me through the working of his power, I became a servant of this gospel. And so grace triumphs over the death that Adam introduced into humanity. And if you have received this grace, if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Savior, you can be assured that there is an incredible power at work in your life. Sin and death have been decisively defeated in your life. And it's so important for you and I to believe this to the uttermost, down to every molecule in your body, to believe that sin and death have been defeated in your body. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Amen. Amen. You know, you may be sitting here today 
And I can look out across the room and I know there are people here who've lost husbands and wives, fathers, mothers, and children. Just want to ask you to think about the tremendous power that Jesus has brought to bear upon their life and yours when they know Jesus as their Savior to reverse the curse of sin and to take us from this broken, tragic world into a world of indescribable glory and beauty. And that life begins for us today. It begins now. Eternal life is not then and there. Eternal life is here and now. So that's what brings up our last point today, is that life dominates everyone who exists in Christ. About three or four weeks ago, I was asked to speak at my aunt's funeral. Uh, This is my aunt, who was my father's sister, and she had a daughter, my cousin, whom I had not seen in 20 years. Uh, There was a lot of tension between our parents after they settled my grandfather's estate. You know, and there's just, and I've shared some of this before, but I was really bitter and angry about the way all that went down, how that affected my dad. But we got reconciled after the death of my dad's brother. Well, now here's my dad's sister who's passed away. Well, I met my cousin after 20 years. She's a lawyer for a big pharmaceutical company in New Jersey. And she has a beautiful family. She's doing well. And had another cousin there I hadn't seen in a long time. And so we're at this barbecue restaurant afterwards, just sitting down. We hadn't seen each other since we were in high school, maybe. Maybe even junior high, all together like this. And it was amazing. We had the best time. And so I just kind of looked at my cousin. I said, you know, I, I just want to know, like, fill me in on the last 20 years. Like, what happened? You know, where have you been? What have you been doing? And she told us an amazing story that I never knew. See, her dad married my dad's sister. He's a really bright guy, by the way. He, you know, his his parents paid for him to go to UT, but he dropped out. He didn't like school. He became a highway patrolman. He didn't like that. So he became a diesel mechanic. That's so much better. (laughs) And so uh, he got married, but his first marriage failed. And he met my aunt and he asked my aunt, my dad's sister, to marry him. Well, then he started a construction business and it crashed. That was years ago. He made a lot of money, you know, and they had, a, they had a family, they had a home, and they had a baby. That was my cousin. But then it crashed, and they left Texas. And we totally lost touch. And this is the part of the story I didn't know. Meredith told me that for a while they were homeless. They were living in their car. They lived in motels when they had money. My cousin missed first grade. They moved, to Tex- they moved from Texas to, like, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Colorado, uh, Nebraska, and finally ended up in New Jersey. And she told a great story. She said, my uncle was, my uncle, his name's Robert. He was just desperate. His life was a wreck. Everything he had ever touched just falls apart. And he's about to lose his second marriage. And everything in his life was just dying. Just dying. And he turned to God in a huge way. Meredith said she can remember when she was first grade, you know, and they were you know, like in a motel or something, man. He would get out that Gideon Bible and he would just sit there. He'd just read his Bible for hours, for hours. And he turned his life over to the Lord in a big way. And he, he came to know Christ as his savior. And then he led my aunt to the Lord. And, and then, uh, you know, uh, they, be, they became a, a God-seeking 
Christ-centered home. Not perfect, but rather than death reigning over him, life began to reign in their family. And things kind of began coming together. And you know, they, they, they found another great job and they built a great life up in New Jersey. And she went to great schools and obviously, you know, went on to law school and they were, you know, did, did very, very well. They established a godly home. And if you're around him today, he just loves the Lord so much. And she, my cousin, just loves the Lord so much. It's so great to see. But it all began when he just got so sick and tired of dying. Dying. Look at verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul says death reigned through that one man, he's talking about more than just your funeral. Okay? Just like my uncle, I want to I ask you to think about this. How much of your life is dominated by death today? I don't mean like the physical process of dying, but it, it just seems like everything you touch just dies. Whether it's your marriage, your finances, whether it's your relationship with your children, whether it's your health, it just seems like everything's just dying. It's withering, you know, like a, like a peach that you forgot at the back of the refrigerator, you know? Something like that. You know, death reigned over my aunt and uncle for many years. And some people seem to never have anything but death in their lives. It reigns over them. But now in Christ, Paul is saying, death does not have to reign over you. You can reign in life. You can reign in life because there is life in Christ. John 5, 26, Jesus said this, as the Father has life, in himself, God created life. So he has granted the son to have life in himself. <clears throat> I remember when I first started to study my Bible seriously, when I was in my early 20s, one thing that struck me that I had never seen before was that there was life all through my Bible. It was everywhere. John 10, 10. I memorized this verse a long time ago. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. But then, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's so critical to get what Jesus says here. He laid down his life so that you could have life. Or put another way, Jesus exchanged his life for your death. Death dominates my life and yours. And Jesus laid down his life and he took our death so that we could have his life. And this is really important to understand. If you don't get anything else today, I hope you get this. Jesus did not die on that cross to change your life. All right? So you could just do better. Jesus died on that cross to exchange your life for his. Or you could say it this way, to exchange your death for his life. Colossians 3, Paul wrote this, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. And when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. This is a concept that 
might be kind of hard to understand at first glance, but is repeated over and over again in your Bible. Jesus is offering you and me not life for later on. Eternal life doesn't begin later on. He offers us life here and now, today. Life in the midst of all this death all around us. When my uncle was living under the dominion of death, he turned to God. And how did he do it? He turned to God's word. And I know, I know he probably didn't know how to articulate it, but he's like, God, I'm dying inside. I need life. Lord, I need life. And he turned to God's word and he found life. And I want you to think about this. There again, going back to Genesis chapter one, when God speaks, there is creative power. There is life-giving power. Life is created when God speaks. And that means there is power life-giving power when God speaks through his word, your Bible. There's power to create, power to generate life where there's been death, power to transform, to move you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Jesus said it this way in John 6, 6, 3. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Hebrews says the word of God is living, living and active. And so if death is reigning over your life today, I would just say, man, get alone with God. Seek him in his word. And in your heart, just say, Lord, I need life. I need life. Lord, give me life. And by the way, it was so neat sitting there at that table. My my cousin, she was telling me that story. I said, that is incredible. That is amazing. When she said, well, Les, how did you get into the ministry? I said, my story is just like your dad's. I was, I was in college though, but I was, I was dying. I was dying inside. I didn't know what to do. And I remember going back to my, going back to my apartment, just opening up my Bible. And I just started reading my Bible. I was like, God, I need you. I need you. I'm dying. And I need something to bring life into my living. And he did. He did. And so I want to leave you with this today from a man named Ian Thomas. I want to recommend a book to you today. It's called The Saving Life of Christ. It's a Christian classic. I read it years ago, profoundly changed my life. The Saving Life of Christ by Ian Thomas. And this is a quote. He says, Christ did not die that you might be saved from a bad conscience or to remove the stain of your past failure, but to clear the decks for divine action. It may be hard to believe, but Christ has come to save us from the bondage of our sinful nature by manifesting his own victorious life from within our soul. Ah, So, so good. Christ did not die on that cross to just change your life, but to exchange his life for your death. Let's all bow our heads together this morning. I want to ask you to think about this. When does life begin When does death begin to die in your life? When I think it's when we're so humble before God, so desperate before God, and we just go to him, we say, Lord, I need life. Death is reigning over my marriage, over my home over my mental health, over my emotions, 
It could be any number of things over my career. And Lord, I need life. And when we say, Lord, I need life, what we're really saying is, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. And so this morning, we're going to sing that incredible song to kind of conclude our service. But there may be some of us here today who instead of singing, need to spend some time praying. And just praying in our, in our deep heart, Lord, I need life. I need you in this area of my life. That might be where we need to go today. And so I want to pray for us this morning. And we're going to enter that time of worship. But for some of us here today, it might need to be a time of prayer. And so, Father, we just come before you this morning and thank you so much that you have given so much to us that we have life here and now. And so we just thank you, Jesus, for the life that you offer us. And I just pray, Lord, that if there are those here today who are not afforded that opportunity to reign in life, Lord, that if there's someone here today who doesn't know you as their Savior, that, Lord, today would be the day that they would bow their knee to you and say, Lord, Lord, I need you so much to, to save my very soul. And, Lord, there are believers here today, and death is reigning in some area of their life. Lord, I, I just ask that you would just open up the eyes of their heart, beginning with me, Lord, that we might see where death reigns. And, Lord, we might just see your life come into that area of our earthly existence. We just need you so much, Lord. We need you so much. That's the cry of our heart. Lord, we need you. And so we cry this in Jesus' name today.